some came along Honey grabbed a hold of it And it fell like a ball and shake made Janis Joplin a superstar? What made her ascend to be this rock goddess, this uh, representative of this cultural movement that was happening in America in the late 60s? You know, these are really dumb questions because you can hear it right there. It's that voice and that charisma and the fact that she threw her whole body and her whole mind into her performances. Um, a shooting star, if you will. Somebody that that you just couldn't ignore because she was right there forcing you to dance and and, and lose yourself in her music. Um, there's a darker undercurrent to uh, her popularity, of course. You know, the fact that she was a well-known heroin addict and the fact that she had demons to deal with throughout her entire life. And also, <clears throat> there's this thing back... It's it's not really applicable nowadays because there's so many people making music of all different uh, creeds and colors and genders. Um, but back then, uh, there was this implicit sort of understanding in how certain artists, both male and female, would make music. And you intrinsically would judge their music across certain ways, you know, especially the media would. <clears throat> uh, and certain artists have talked about this differentiation before between art and craft. Art being something that's unpolished and fiery and raw and destructive. When you think of performances by people like Elvis Presley and Mick Jagger and Johnny Rotten, you know, uh, destroying things, you know, people who would throw themselves into their work uh, without really much care for what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, whereas craft is sort of more clean, more polished, predetermined, constructive. Think performances by Joni Mitchell or Nina Simone. Very controlled. Um, everything's sort of set the way it is, and it, it's meant to be produced and performed as a piece rather than just whatever happens, happens, you know? And of course, these categories were not exclusive, you know? Think of people like the Beatles who would make music that was, you know, composed and then performed without much in the way of improv or or you know, destructive parts. Um, but there was this weird sexist undercurrent made on each one of these kinds of artists. If someone was performing and they were male and if someone was performing they were female, you would sort of come into it with that undercurrent of the, this heuristic and that primed your interpretation of their music. Um, now, the thing about Janis Joplin, and she wasn't the first woman to do this, you know, there would be people like Aretha Franklin that had these explosive, these explosive performances uh, and this free, charismatic spirit. Janis Joplin was certainly not the first uh, singer, female singer, or female front woman, we should say. Um, and she firmly was not in the craft camp at all. Um, but when this rock movement started to pick up in the 60s and started to become uh, this mutated shift of blues and R&B and, uh, and what would be now known as the psychedelic movement, she was one of the first female leaders, lead singers in a quote-unquote rock band, and that's what made her well-known. Um, and also Aretha Franklin didn't have that rasp, that gutturalness that Janice possessed, you know, as if she was possessed. 
um, this sort of rasp that that made her feel as though she was a flash in the pan, uh, a rasp that in a way almost guaranteed that she wouldn't last at her level ten years later. You know, if you were watching her on stage back then, you were watching somebody who you knew or at least assumed strongly that she would just not be able to do later in life, you know? Because she was just so... Like, when you were watching her, you could think anything could happen. Like, she could sing any note, and it would sound so good. Um, you know, that's not to say her death in in late 19th, in October of 1970, was fitting, because her death was, by and large, a complete accident, despite being born of uh, tragic circumstances. You know, and we'll get into that a little later. Um, but her avenue was blues rock. It wasn't straight ahead rock. She was a blues singer that sort of retrofitted into a rock avenue. And in the late sixties, of course, that was a popular form of rock music mixed with the, the burgeoning psychedelica movement and, uh, everything. And her past and as well as her circumstances helped her convey that pain that makes blues music so compelling. Um, a lot of that pain, of course, comes from youth. Everyone knows that. She grew up in uh, Port Arthur, Texas, uh, and she was constantly bullied for her looks. Um, she just was one of those girls that unfortunately didn't have the kinds of features that were attractive back then. Um, and she was just... She said in an interview in Dick Cavett uh, in 1967 that the kids in her school you know, ran her out of town, out of state is what she said. That's why she decided to leave for San Francisco. Um, she managed to finish high school with just so many demons, so many self-esteem issues. Um, she turned into a little bit of a rebellious kid, of course, because of that. And these are demons that she would fight for her entire life. We all have them, you know, those, these, these sort of, um, personal struggles, things that Janice would end up fighting all the way up until her death. So she decided to attend college at University of Texas, Austin, but she didn't finish her schooling, and perhaps it was partly because of how she was, again, treated by her classmates. There were frat boys who voted her ugliest man on campus, which is so fucking awful. Um, and uh, once she decided that she had had enough of college, she decided to travel to North Beach, San Francisco, and start sort of a free life you know, where she could just sort of do what she wanted to do. The uh, people that she ended up becoming friends with sort of introduced her more to blue music, blues music, sort of started to get her into this musical lifestyle. Um, but this is when her, her life activities started to take a turn towards the illegal. Uh, she was arrested in 1963 for shoplifting. It was around this time that her friends started to get her into injecting hard drugs into her system. So this is when she started to get addicted to amphetamines, to get addicted to heroin, etc. You know, as part of this scene that she was starting to become raised in in her, her, her early young womanhood. By the time that she returned to her parents in Texas and her friends ended up throwing like a bus fare party so she could collect the bus fare and need to get back to Texas, she weighed 88 pounds. She was just so emaciated from taking all these drugs. Um, and her parents and her, because she knew she wanted to get out of this lifestyle, she finally decided to start a clean life. She reattended college. She tried to be an anthropology major. She started working with a counselor. Um, and this guy's name was Berard uh, Giartano. And she expressed to this guy that she wanted to start a music career. Um, she didn't know how, of course, but she knew that she had a great voice. She knew she loved singing. 
And she was afraid, and her therapist knew this as well, she was afraid that if she started a music career that she would start getting into hard drugs again because she wanted to lead a clean life, you know? And once you're on those drugs, there's really no going back. You're fighting it for your entire life. Um, but her therapist told her that if she didn't pursue music, she would end up just pursuing the same lifestyle that and you know, was common for women of that age at that point. She would end up like all the other women in Port Arthur, is what he said. So with those words and with her own ambitions, uh, she decided to try looking for a career in music. And this is where she ran into uh, the band that would be the stage on which her fame would just catapult out. So uh, she found this band called Big Brother and the Holding Company. And this was in 1966. Uh, one of the manager of the band's friends uh, found her and, you know, they knew about her drug past. And the guy was like, if you start this music career, you're going to run into it one way or another, you know. So I just want to make sure this is the right decision. She was like, I can do it. So he offered to drive her all the way back to her parents' house in Port Arthur to inform them of her decision. Um, of course, her parents knew that she ran the risk of getting hooked on drugs again. So they were flabbergasted. But she was like, I can do this. It's fine. While she was in the band, she tried to avoid hard drugs. There were members of the band that promised her, like gave her their word that she wouldn't be exposed to them. Of course, it happened anyway. One of the friends of the band um, was shooting up in front of her, and then she got mad. It's uncertain when specifically she started taking drugs again, but it definitely did happen because... By 1969, when she was launching off her solo career, uh, she was starting to do $200 worth of heroin a day. So this, this obviously wasn't going to lead to anything good. She started to do albums uh, and performances with Big Brother and The Holding Company, um, and they were part of this San Francisco scene, this burgeoning psychedelia scene, um, along with The Grateful Dead, which she knew a lot of the members. She had a brief relationship with one of the members who also ended up dying at 27, but, you know, that's another story. Uh, her breakthrough performances, and this is a constant for a lot of people back then, um, was just like Jimi Hendrix at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, where she performed a bunch of songs, and some of them were filmed and some of them were recorded, but the big one, the one that everyone knows... Uh, is her performance of Big Mama Thornton's Ball and Chain, which you guys just listened to as the intro to this podcast. That's part of it. Um, it was just a fiery, explosive performance. And if it weren't enough, um, the filmmaker also happened to catch the reaction of Mama Cass of the Mamas and the Papas. And that was enough to sort of, you could just look at her face and how she was reacting to this performance. She was just going like, oh my God, wow. Turning to her bandmates and and the people next to her and being like, are you, are you watching this right now? And that was a sort of a lead once Monterey Pop, the documentary, uh, came out. People sort of, they were, they got the idea that this woman was something special. Um, and after that, she started to do more televised appearances. Her first televised appearance was on This Morning in the summer of 1968. Uh, at this point, the media were starting to gain they're starting to pay more attention to her specifically, even though the band was getting bigger and bigger and bigger because of this movement. Um, the band started to 
be marketed as Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company, which is a really long name. And of course, this garnered resentment from the band because they wanted to be known for their own um, accomplishments and not necessarily for the fact that there was this this person that was leading this band that was all of a sudden starting to get really, really famous. Um, the band went into the studio to write their next album, um, which they designed to sound like a live album. And there were, of course, some tracks that were actually performed live, but most of them were in the studio that then had uh, live uh, sounds and a live audience uh, recorded over that. And they called it Cheap Thrills. And this was an album that Janice herself contributed majorly to, according to people who were at the recording process at the time. She was always the first one there and the last one to leave. So she really threw herself into this this project. Um, the cover art was done by Robert Crumb. So if you're seeing the cover art for the first time, he was one of those guys that was part of the counterculture. It's very controversial. Um, the music itself is very compellingly raw. It's still a really good listen nowadays. That came out in 1968, and it was number one on the Billboard 200 for eight weeks. It wasn't at its release, but it started to get more and more popularity as Joplin started to get more and more famous. And the fact that that album sold so well cemented that band's role in the nation's burgeoning psych scene, which was starting to spread all across America. At that point, she knew that she had reached her limit with Big Brother. So, and this was there was, of course, resentment between the members. So at the end of 1968, she decided, you know what, I'm just going to quit it. She performed for the last time in December, and then she was on her own, and she could form whatever band she wanted to. So she decided to form this band called the Cosmic Band Blues. And like we mentioned, of course, at this point, Joplin was doing a ton of heroin every single day. She was sort of ragged. Of course, she was, well, maybe choosing is a wrong word, but she was, she preferred to do hard drugs over alcohol because alcohol would sort of diminish the power and the quality of her voice over just shooting up and then getting on stage. Um, she put out an album called I Got Them Old Cosmic Blues Again, Mama, and critically, it wasn't as praised as Cheap Thrills. Some people wanted her to be back in Big Brother. Some people thought that the, the band, which also included now a brass and horn section, just didn't fit the kinds of vocal stylings that they wanted to hear from her. They actually wanted to hear Joplin as opposed to just a band with Joplin. Um, so she was doing interviews through 1968 all the way up to her, to her death. Um, the media was covering her rampantly. And looking at her interviews and her performances, it's very clear that Janice desired nothing more than to get people to lose themselves in her voice and in her music, there was this really revealing interview on the Dick Cavett Show where Joplin expressed her disappointment in uh, European audiences for not getting down to her music live. It's an interesting sentiment because if you think about how music is now and how people, uh, like music festivals, for example, a lot of rock bands on stage specifically, you know, and and, you know, softer stuff is really what's going on. The, the rowdier crowds are more for rap and whatnot. But um, could you imagine if Janice was performing nowadays and just seeing a bunch of people just standing there and watching the music? I mean, that's exactly why she hated performing in Europe, apparently. Because she, when she was performing, she wanted the audience to be just as transient in spirit as she was. Like, to... to she was losing herself on stage and she wanted the crowd to feel the same exact way, which is why she was doing what she was doing. Or who knows? I don't know. I can't get inside her head. Um, of course, 
being one of the pioneering rock female rock singers uh, in America, you also had to deal with the sexism. You had to deal with the double standards. Uh, her personal life was on blast because she was bisexual. Um, she had this ongoing relationship with this woman she met uh, at one of her smaller Big Brother shows back in uh, 1966. This woman who would come to factor into her death, and her name was Peggy Caserta. Janice described her as somewhere between a groupie and a friend. She entered her life uh, back in San Francisco. Um, she was one of 15 people in the audience, and uh, at that point she owned a clothing store in Hyde Ashbury. Uh, she was, at that point... Her, not at that point. She was sort of this woman who was interested in the band. Actually, she was interested in one of the male members of the band. I think it was the drummer. Um, and when Joplin visited her clothing store for the first time, they were discussing pants, and Joplin was like, oh, there's a, this pair of pants I really love, but I can't afford it, and Caserta just sort of gave them away for free, and that sort of started their relationship together. Uh... After the band, the Big Brother uh, member shot her down, Joplin sort of expressed her, her sympathies towards her. And then eventually they sort of started to get romantically involved. What complicated their relationship was that Caserta was also a heroin user. And Joplin and Caserta would end up shooting up and doing drugs together. Uh, and this, this would become a... Rec they would do this over and over up until her death. Uh... At her performance at Woodstock, there's, I mean, there's not much of Joplin covered in the Woodstock documentary, the famous one, but there's footage of Joplin and Concerta walking together, like about 35, 40 seconds uh, in that documentary. So she was with her at the time. Uh, and that's interesting because uh, we need to talk a little bit about Woodstock and how, because that was a big moment for Joplin. Um, of course, she was owning her image more and more. She was starting to wear loose-fitting psychedelic clothing, um, she had her new band. Her fame was growing by the minute. Uh, and she was set to play this big festival in 1969, the famous one, Woodstock. She landed down via helicopter, as a lot of artists did, and saw how many people she would be performing to, some, somewhere in the hundreds of thousands. And she started to get really nervous, real giddy. Peggy Caserta was with her the whole time, and uh, Joplin would actually divert questions to her. And she decided to deal with this nervousness by getting incredibly drunk and shooting up. Uh, people described her as three sheets to the wind at that point. And uh, a lot of people who were watching her performance, her actual performance, uh, people like uh, Pete Townsend of The Who, they expressed that she definitely wasn't at her best performance-wise, but she had her, her wits about her. She was um, talking to the crowd, making sure they had everything all set. Um, and part of that performance is covered. She decided to do Ball and Chain as an encore. Uh, and despite the fact that she wasn't at her tip-top game, she was still Joplin and she was still killing it. So that was just another notch in her growing career and her growing fame. So after Woodstock, um, there's not really much more exciting to discuss uh, until October of 1970. She would just continue to evolve her style. She started wearing uh, boas in her hair. Her clothing started to get fancier and, and more free. Um, she had down performances. She had up performances. She started to do more shows, uh, more live performances. She performed on Dick Cavett a lot. 
Uh, but she wasn't happy with the fact that she was still addicted to hard drugs and she couldn't break it and she knew that her health was deteriorating because of it. So there was a brief moment where she decided to move to Brazil for a few months, uh, date a beatnik, um, sort of go a little bit on hiatus. And at this point, she was clean. She was completely clean in Brazil up until she came back to America and immediately got addicted back to hard drugs. But she got clean very shortly after this, so she was clean up until a few days before her death. Now, it's important to note at this point that Peggy Caserta wrote a biography about her relationship with Janis Joplin, which she put out a few years after Joplin's death. This biography was called Going Down with Janis, you know, with this implicit sexual title. I actually wouldn't recommend reading this book because as it turns out, and Caserta gave another interview just last year, uh, she did the book essentially for drug money because she was well-known at the time. She was sort of starting to get, you know, she was in the public eye because of her relationship with Janis Joplin. And because of this book and the way she tells how she interacted with Joplin during her last days, she started to get blamed for her death. And we'll talk about this in just a second. Um, but Caserta wrote this book, and this is how we get to know essentially what Joplin was doing um, up until her death, because the details are still a little murky. So Joplin checked into the Landmark Hotel to record her newest album, which would become a posthumous album, Pearl, her best-selling album in her career, that came out in 1971. The Landmark Hotel, if you don't know what it was, was this uh, location where people would check in, and then essentially there were so many dealers around the area you could procure any drug you wanted or needed. So Joplin already sort of knew that she had access to the drug if she wanted to have it. And of course, at this point, you're so tempted, especially during the stresses of recording and, and wanting to make sure you get the performances you can. Um, she was really jonesing for that drug. So they were recording, and the recording sessions took place around two weeks. That's usually how much time it would take. And Joplin ran into Caserta when she was at the hotel. According to the original biography, Caserta claimed that Joplin asked her, asked her for the drug. And at this point, Caserta and Joplin were trying to stay away from each other so that Joplin wouldn't get addicted to drugs, and neither would Caserta. When Joplin asked, allegedly asked Caserta for the drug, Caserta refused, and Joplin was like, I can get it. Don't think if you can get it, I can't get it. And then a few days afterward, Joplin started procuring the same uh, drug from the same dealer, and they started shooting up together. This is apparently not what happened. Um, apparently, Caserta had more of an involvement in Joplin getting back on the drug. Um, but essentially, Joplin started using heroin again, at least in the three or four days before her death. So now the details get a little murky because there's two separate stories as to what might have happened. Um, so Joplin was dating and soon to be engaged. Apparently he was an apparent fiance. Um, his guy's name was Seth Morgan. And when Seth met Caserta, there was this sort of implied notion, I think they had arranged it beforehand that they were going to have a menage a trois. Um, however, the night that she died, that Joplin died, Caserta and Seth sort of just sort of lost interest and they didn't tell Joplin, but they were like, well, I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm not really gonna, it was one of those things where it was an oral agreement, no pun intended, and Joplin just sort of was alone that night, so she decided to go bum some heroin. Uh, 
she mentioned apparently to the dealer that she was disappointed that they didn't get together. So John Byrne Cook, Joplin's road manager, he noticed that Joplin was late to be in the studio. She was set to record vocals to a song that her band had recorded the previous night called Buried Alive in the Blues. And he drove down to the landmark. It was all happening in Los Angeles, by the way, so, you know. He goes and he takes a key to her room, goes into the room, and there he finds Joplin sprawled out next to her bed, sort of slumped over. She's got $4.50 in her hand. There's a pack of cigarettes on the side table, and her face is caked with dried blood. Um, from, I, I, She assumed that she hit her head on the table and then caused herself self-injury that caused her to bleed. Um, so the obvious scene, this is what Cook says, the obvious scene here is that uh, Joplin went to buy cigarettes from a vending machine and then came back. He checked the side table and, you know, there was the spoon and the hypodermic needle and, you know, all the evidence was right there. And the coroner later declared that it was indeed a heroin overdose that killed Janice. Now, this is where the details get a little murky because she obviously had heroin in her system from doing it three or four days prior to her death. And Janice's sister gave a report saying that every single time that Janice purchased heroin, she got it from the very same dealer. The dealer was super careful. Um, and that night, as it turns out, he didn't check the dosage before giving it to her, and it turned out to be way purer than anything she had had before. We're talking like eight to ten times stronger. And this was apparently happening to a lot of people who were buying the drug that night. There were, I think, five or six more overdoses that were traced back to this dealer. The problem is, is that considering the fact that Janice had been doing heroin since she was 21, 22... It seems unlikely that she would indeed be procuring the heroin from the same dealer, especially when the heroin that she had purchased that night was from Caserta's dealer. And given that they were both two different people who had not known each other before Joplin's music career, it just, it just seems unlikely that that was actually the case. Caserta, to this day, and again, she gave an interview, um, or put out another book, we should say, that she then did interviews on. This book was called... Uh, I ran into some trouble, which she co-wrote with another person that she intended to set the record straight with. And Caserta, to this day, believes that it was not indeed a heroin overdose that killed Janice because the thing about heroin overdoses is that as soon as you inject the drug, it takes about eight seconds for, the, for blood to go through your system entirely. As soon as you inject the drug, the body knows that it's too much and you immediately go into a coma and then die. Um, and Joplin had enough time to go get cigarettes from a vending machine, so it seems unlikely, given those circumstances, that Joplin would have indeed died from an overdose. What Caserta believes is that, considering the head injury that Joplin um, received and the, the blood that was on her face, she believed that Joplin tripped on her rug, hit her head on the table, uh broke her nose or did some facial injury and then because she was so hopped up on heroin she just sort of choked on her own blood and then died that's what she believed happened um of course we're never going to know the true case but it does seem a little more likely than just straight up dying from an overdose again if you had the time to go get cigarettes i guess this is at this point we'll never know because 
A, it's kind of irrelevant. She's been dead for almost 50 years. Um, and B, it just, it sucks to say, but as far as superstars and media is concerned, dying from a heroin overdose just has this, this air about it that's so much more quote-unquote glamorous than just falling and hitting your head on a table, you know, which can happen. But I don't know, man. It just, it, it sucks that it was, it was one of those things where as soon as you take the drug, and this is the thing we've learned from so many casualties and from the opioid epidemic that's happening nowadays. As soon as you take the drug, you are fighting your entire life to break it. And that is exactly what Janice did. And, and taking that drug, obviously, the first time was something that was incredibly stupid of her. But considering how she felt about herself and the demons that she was dealing with her entire life, it's not necessarily unsurprising. You know, if you felt like you had to get away from those feelings, then of course, you know. She burned out, is what happened. Um, her death rocked the world. It came literally two weeks after Jimi Hendrix's death. Um, the idealistic 60s were starting to darken at that point, and it was shocking. Um, there were a lot of people now who uh, consider themselves influenced by Janice's voice. And she is one of those artists where if you listen to her voice now, it's actually kind of hard to hear something truly truly special and that's legitimately because of so many people that are now influenced by her um and then of course despite the fact that she was novel at the time there are so many more singers that have done more with those explosive vocals you know the diva movement how r&b exploded in the 90s um it's just one of those things where it's just been so many years and so many artists have borrowed from those stylings that it's it's hard to see something special. But you got to do yourself a favor and watch some of her performances and see that that woman in action, you know, to see somebody who was expressing all of that pain and, and, and wanted literally nothing more than to just have people be happy and to to find their better selves in her music, you know. So despite the fact that she had self-destructive tendencies and, and you know, that carried into her lifestyle and, and her music, to see someone operate on that level, it's truly transcendent. So it really was a trage tragedy when she, when she died, as, as she was. Um, but hey, you know, that, that's, that's the lifestyle, you know. You, you can tour all you want to. This recurring theme that rock and roll killed people, you know, it, it rings so false when you see where artists sort of come from and, and the things they have to deal with and how, sure, you know, touring constantly and being in the public eye can exacerbate certain feelings about yourself, but, you know, rock and roll never killed anybody. It was always unfortunate circumstances and and how things ended up, you know, life is tragic. And uh, to continue that, we are going to be talking next week about uh, somebody who's not necessarily revered in the public eye anymore, at least not as, as he was back then. Uh, a drunk and a douchebag, but somebody truly influential all the same, Mr. Jim Morrison. That's next week, though. Until then, thank you so much for listening. 
I hope you enjoyed that. I swear to God, after this series is over, we will get back to normal episodes with people all across the state and the city, this beautiful city of Seattle, uh, where the talent is overflowing. Until then, I'm just an average guy. I'm Robert Mora. Thank you so much for listening. Check in next week. Thank you. Bye.